You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is part of one of our most famous battles and a story here that we love to tell on the Hazard Ground. I've told several times over, but we know the audience can't get enough of it. That is Black Hawk Down. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. But our normal set of reminders for you guys, please continue to leave us Apple reviews. We need more of them. You are helping out this show so much by doing it. However you get your Apple podcast, please leave us a short review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. It doesn't have to be anything lengthy, but this will help us grow the show. Apple will push it out to more and more people, and we'll continue to grow this Hazard Ground community again. No matter where you get it, your smartphone, iPad, whatever it may be, Find how you get Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. That certainly helps us out. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show there as well. Of course, we always tweet out all the information or you know post all the information on social media about each episode coming up. Of course, you can contact us there as well. We do our best to get back to everybody who reaches out to us via social media. So please, uh, thoughts, comments, we, we, we are hoping to hear them all through social media. Give us a follow. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, and you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show, like the one you'll hear today, which is of particular interest to me because I am a, a consumer of the product that they make. So we'll get to that as well coming up. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well and download the Killcliff TV app. You can watch all of our episodes there as well. I know a lot of our audience is via the audio podcast, but you can also watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or on the Killcliff TV app. Check out all the other Killcliff's great content that they have on their app as well. And don't forget to order your Killcliff from killcliff.com as I always hold up our Killer Cliff Sickle CBD version. If you're into CBD, Killcliff is a clean energy drink. That is a great way to get your CBD. Of course, uh, promoted by Joe Rogan, you can get his uh, Flaming Joe Pineapple flavor. Uh, Joe Rogan, one of the most popular guys out there. But again, killcliff.com to order all of your clean energy drinks. Their proceeds benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation, an amazing company. Know everybody in that company very, very well. Make sure you support them. And if you like energy drinks, instead of all that crap that's out there with the Monster and the Red Bull, these are clean energy drinks. I use them personally, the pre-workout, Ignite, and the post-workout. Absolutely home run products. So make sure you guys go to KillCliff.com and order your KillCliff there. All right, on to this week's guest, uh, who spent over 21 years in the military. As a former enlisted man, now a retired major, uh, spent most of his career as an Army Ranger in the historic 75th Ranger Regiment. He was part of Operation Urgent Fury, as I mentioned, also Black Hawk Down in Somalia. He had two deployments to Afghanistan as well. He was inducted into the Ranger Hall of Fame in 2017, and he's currently an ambassador for Three Rangers Whiskey. I told you there was a product that I personally like. I'm a big whiskey drinker, love brown liquor, whiskey, rye, bourbon, to drink it all, so excited to hear about Three Rangers Whiskey. He is Larry Morris joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Larry, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, appreciate your time. Uh, now listen, uh, anybody who's peddling whiskey is, is going to be an immediate friend of mine. So uh, I'm excited to learn all about Three Rangers whiskey. I have, and full disclosure, I've yet to try it, but it's it's now on my list officially. Awesome. Yeah, you'll like it. We get some great reviews and uh, it's getting a lot of momentum the last couple of years. 
Well, Black Hawk Down is one of uh, this show's most popular stories that we always tell. I think we're over a dozen now. In fact, Matt, Matt Eversman was our very first guest in the show. Matt's a friend of mine. But everybody from uh, Lee Van Arsdale, Mike Durant, Jeff Struker, John Bellman, I mean, and a whole lot more. Everybody, I'm sure that you know all the names that I have just mentioned were all part of that operation. And, and we've had a chance to talk to them all. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you because, as I told you before we start recording, no matter how many people I talk to from this battle, no matter how much I think I've studied it from every angle, no matter how much I feel like I've been there, even though I wasn't, uh, from talking to everybody, I always learn something new. So I'm excited to hear about your view of one of the most uh, one of the most notable battles in American military history uh, coming up. But uh, start back at the beginning for me because you were an enlisted man first before you switched over to the officer ranks. How and when did your uh, your army career start? Um, I started as a young um, 18 year old straight out of high school uh, enlisted on a direct contract right to the first Ranger battalion so I I went through basic airborne showed up in Savannah as a bright-eyed bushy tail had no idea what I got myself into <laughs> and uh, really had an amazing experience it probably was one of the best times to show up um, the the early 80s in the Ranger battalions was amazing uh, to go to 175 uh, Charlie Company had not too long before that been on uh, Operation Eagle Claw in, in Iran. Um, they were laser focused. They, they didn't want to go on another operation that wasn't a success. So everything we did, we did hard. We, we did it four times and, and we did it until we were very proficient. So, so showing up when I did uh, was a perfect time and place to build a, a foundation uh, not knowing that it would be a foundation for an entire career, uh, but it, it, it did serve me well having those kind of leaders and mentors uh, as I showed up as a young young private. Now, you said you enlisted with a Ranger contract. Why? Was that something you had studied and wanted to do, or is it something that the recruiter just gave you and said, here, Larry, take this? Uh, well, no, the recruiters <laughs> are never that helpful, I don't think. <laughs> but uh, we uh, – my brother was a junior at West Point at the time. Um, we come from a military family. So Leon was a, um, a third year cadet and we had sat down and um, I played hockey in school and I played more hockey than in school. Um, so I, I, um, I, I had decided to go in the military and my brother gave me some great advice as two kids talking to each other. And he said, um, he said, go, if you're going to go in the military, go into a good unit. Because then you're going to build the foundation, whether it's a, a foundation for uh, a, a military career or a foundation to get out and go back to school. Whatever you decide to do, it, it'll pay dividends. Uh, and, you know, that was uh, amazing advice from a big brother who is still one of my, my best mentors today. Um, but it, it really did serve well uh, going to a unit like that and, and really getting those building blocks and, and rangers. And then you know we deployed to you know, Grenada, uh, less than a year after I got there. So it was, it was an amazing whirlwind. I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, because at the time, you know, generally when you said it was a great time to sign up during the 80s, my first reaction was, really? Because, like, it seemed like there was nothing going on. Now, obviously, we know in the special ops community, there's always something going on. Uh, there's sure. always someplace to go, someplace to train, someplace to be. Uh, so that kind of eliminates that. But still, I mean, it's for you, um, because you came from a military background, were you more mentally prepared for the, the, the life of a ranger, you think, than, than maybe some of your, your counterparts? No, I think so. We, we were athletic kids. We, we hunted. We, our, our family's from north central Maine, um, so we spent a lot of time outdoors. We, we hiked. We climbed Mount Katahdin in the summers. We, 
we fished, we hunted, you know, we, we did all those things to prep, prep a, uh, a young kid again, to go different directions, but it, it suited us well as uh, infantrymen. My brother would, would serve in the 82nd and then go back to medical school after that. But, um, we, we both served together, um, jumped together. So that, that foundation that we had as kids, you know, playing outside, running, uh, competing in sports, uh, you know, really suited us well and, 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 and did us good, you know, through our initial time. And then uh, as we built on our military careers. Now, you mentioned you went right to uh, Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada when you had first started. Um, so I'm curious, when you got in, did you have sort of this like, hey, I really want to get into combat kind of mentality early on? Or you just were willing to see where, where, where the Army took you and where you were going? I, I think back then it was more of a um, let's let's see where this goes and, and how it develops. Um, I, I love the training environment in the, the 80s and the Rangers. We we traveled a lot. We were always uh, on a deployment somewhere. Uh, we, we would go to Panama. We would jump into cold weather training. We, we, we were constantly on the go. And it really was a tremendous um, experience uh, with, with all the different environments that you, you worked in. Um, but again, you didn't really think about the, uh, the, the combat aspect of it. Um, you know, it was, uh, post-Vietnam, um, you know, the, the Eagle Claw had happened in Iran, but unless you were a, a military historian or in the military at the time, you know, that wasn't a, a, a big scope on the radar for the military units that were involved. Um, so, um, you know, getting to deploy young, uh, you know, I, was, I, I had just turned 19, um, uh, really showed me, that hey, these are the type of units that you want to be in. Um, if you're, if you're going to go somewhere, surround yourself with the best people and then, um, you'll continue to build on that, that foundation for uh, future assignments, uh, future deployments. And, and it, it just happened that way. Um, the, the community is interesting because a lot of it's about timing. If, you know, the missions, if you think back to Grenada, Panama, Somalia, they were, they were shorter duration, uh, missions. So, you know, we had friends who would be in the advanced course or in, in ANOC or, um, you know, in, in ranger school even, and, and they wouldn't go on these deployments. So when there was one every six or seven years, <laughs> if you if you missed it, that was tough for these guys who spent a lot of time in the rangers and didn't get to deploy. So how long is it from when you actually get to the ranger battalion before you leave for uh, Operation Urgent Fury? Um, I arrived uh, November of 1982, and then we deployed uh, the following October. So it was just less than a year of, of of training. You know, getting that that foundational work, understanding who those go to leaders were. The the, the mentors and leaders were just uh, really really solid. So just um, finding someone to latch onto and, and and be a sponge and, and learn as much as you can. Are, are you really thinking? I was going to say, are you thinking at this point in time, sorry to cut you off, are you thinking like, how the hell did I end up here? Like when, when you're getting there, it's like, oh my God, that, you know, this was uh, a little bit quicker than I expected. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I, you, 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 you always wonder, you know, what, what's the, what's the end game here? But I think the deployment to, to Urgent Fury really solidified, you know, the, the nights of walking through the swamps at Fort Stewart and the, you know, the Ranger School prep and, and all the things that you went through. And this, this is, this is why we do all that. Um, this is why we have these great leaders above us. Um, you know, the, the, the Vietnam era folks who had been through it before, who had an understanding of how to react 
so it really helped us uh, young kids um, with knowing what right looked like uh, in, in those type of environments. So what was your role in Grenada? Um, I was a, a rifleman. Uh, so I was uh, just a basic, um, you know, squad member. Um, we had just came back from uh, special ops training at Fort Bragg. So we were a squad who had done some additional training, shooting, uh, maneuvering. And, and we, right after we arrived into Grenada, we, we were pulled from our company perimeter and went on a combat search and rescue for one of the task force 160 helicopters that had been shot down. So we went right into, um, you know, one of the, you know, active missions pretty early after we arrived uh, on the island. So it was, again, it was, it was quick, but it was intense. Uh, and uh, again, a great, a great learning experience for, for someone young trying to figure out where this military um, experience is going to take me. How prepared did you feel like you were when you got there? Um, I, I think the, the the training and the environments that the Rangers build on set you up very well. I, I, I felt very comfortable. I, I felt comfortable in the leadership that was over me. I felt comfortable in the the Rangers that were on my left and right. You know, we, we had been trained in a lot of different environments in very intense um, exercises and live fires. So you, they, they, they push it to the limit so you can, you can be prepared when, when things happen uh, for real. And, and I think they, they do as good a job with that as, as any unit there is. Were you part of the, the initial invasion there? Um, I was not okay. in the, the two junk companies, uh, Charlie company, in 175 had a special mission. So we deployed from Fort Bragg. Uh, we, we deployed with the operational unit from Bragg and pulled security on specific missions for them uh, as they as they deployed um, in the airland C-130, C-141s after we got on the island. What was your first combat experience there? Uh, that, that search and rescue was the first mission where we went out um, uh, with engagements um, uh, had some pretty good uh, fire both for insert uh, for infill and exfill. Um, and then uh, I think it was day three or four. We did the big um, Cuban training compound um, where the Blackhawks were uh, shot down again uh, on the other side of the Island. So that was a, uh, those were pretty quick um, in, in sequence. Uh, but, but again, those, those missions were, um, you know, very intense and, and again, a, a, a tremendous uh, learning experience for us as young Rangers to go through something like that. What was it like for you kind of, you know, initially the first time that first round whizzes by your head or, you know, you're actually engaged in combat for the first time? I mean, is there any moment for you where you're like, uh, I'm in it now or are you just kind of like, this is what I'm living for? This is why I'm here? What's your, what's your mindset? I think the, you know, the intensity of it, um, your, your system is on autopilot pretty much. You, you've been trained for it. Some people react differently. I've, I've always been a pretty even keeled. Don't get super excited about things. Um, I had a bunch of bosses. They always said, if, um, nothing to get super excited about unless you get shot at. And, and then once you get shot at, <laughs> and then you figure out how you're going to react. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's the training, it's the experiences. I, through through different deployments and and, and fights, um, I always felt like I handled that aspect of it pretty well. Um, with 
knowing that the preparation got you to where you were uh, for a reason. Um, there weren't. What was the extent of casualties for the U.S. there? I forget. It was uh, a, a, a small number from both of the, the Ranger battalions, um, and then some of uh, some of the 82nd casualties as well. So I want to say uh, maybe maybe close to 20 total. Um, I, I'm not positive. I, yeah, I, I think I it's I, to those numbers. I think it's 19 killed, and and, uh, and this is all of the coalition forces. Uh, for yeah. the United States, it was 19 killed and, and yeah. um, a little bit over 100 wounded. Of course, they had the helicopters that were all, uh, as yeah. you mentioned, shot down. But, I mean, is that – for a kid that young – I mean, what were you, 19 years old, 20 years old at the time? Yeah, um, 19. For a kid that young to get that experience, um, what what, did, what does that do for you? I mean, d- do you feel different when you get back or were you one of the people – you said you were even killed. Was it just like, hey, this is kind of what the deal is? I think it's solidified a lot of the experiences and training up to that point. So that was a key aspect. I think it, it, it proved that when I get in a difficult situation that you can handle it well, that you understand the stresses of it and you can come out the other side with positive results. And, and I think that's a big factor um, because un- until you get in uh, a type of a fight like that and, and everybody gets in a bar fight at some point and you realize, Hey, I'm, I'm not a real good fighter in, in bars, <laughs> so I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, the you know, the other aspect of it is 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 when you when you're in a battle uh, with people on your left and right that you have to count on and understanding all the aspects that go with that. So I I think that's the big takeaway. And, and as the experiences grew, um, it was it was similar. I, I I have been in this before. I know how I reacted, and I can I can have a positive impact on the outcome because I'm not going to get super excited. My, my troops aren't going to try and figure out, um, if the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, what, what is he trying to tell me? Cause he's super excited right now. Uh, keep that calm demeanor, you know, pass your orders, um, let them know what their, their next movement or, or intent is and, and let them go from there. Uh, the, in the grand scheme, the invasion only lasted four days. Um, so it wasn't an incredibly long time that you were there, but I'm sure the lead up and the, and the sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Why am I, why is the, uh, this word should be right on the tip of my tongue? Uh, the lead up and the, and the, you know, redeployment back, uh, was obviously longer than that. Like from start to finish, how long did the whole operation last for you? Yeah, we, we, we were alerted the weekend before, so it was very quick. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they flew us back. It was probably less than, less than two weeks total. Uh, wow. so by the time we got back, so, uh, it, at, at points it seemed very long at, at, at sometimes it seemed very quick, uh, we, we had some operations where we did some movements on the island. We had to clear some sectors of uh, some of the housing areas. So there, there were some intense moments, you know, going into areas, um, you know, the, the Cuban training compound obviously was a big mission uh, for us going in there. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of good, good learning experiences. Uh, you know, we, we had a bunch of, you know, good rangers that were, were killed and, and, and wounded. Uh, so there's a lot of the rebuilding process that goes through after that as well. So that there was a, uh, a, a good learning curve coming out the other end of it, but it was quick. Uh, uh, but the, the, the units continued to grow. You know, they, they were building post, um, you know, Eagle Claw with the addition of additional special ops commands. Grenada was another step in that sequence, you know, and then Panama further solidified it, learning the ins and outs of these command and control elements. So it was, it was interesting to see that 
um, firsthand through these different operations through the 80s and 90s. All right. So uh, it's almost exactly 10 years from the end of um, Grenada to Somalia. Now, obviously, again, there were other things in between there, including, you know, uh, Desert Storm and everything else. And, and uh, Panama was in 89 and you weren't part of any of that. But it, it's hard to gloss over 10 years in a short amount of time. But at some point in time from there, you, you convert over to officer, correct, in that 10 year span? Yeah, I went back to the first range of battalion in the late 80s. Um, left there in, in 1989 uh, prior to the, the Panama jump. Um, all my buddies called me again because I was I didn't I didn't get to jump the second time. <laughs> they, they never they never let you hear the end of it. <laughs> um, so I I left uh, first battalion in '89. Uh, was able to get to school uh, for a, a little while up in Washington D.C. and was accepted into OCS uh, in 1991. Um, so I I was commissioned in '91, just short of my nine years in service point. Um, and I, I, I had tried, I, I had served in the regiment a couple of times. I was an NCO. Um, I went back to the regiment to do an interview and the, the regimental commander at the time said, you know, you were a, you were a good ranger NCO, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good ranger officer. So go out and learn how to be a lieutenant uh, for a year, 18 months. Uh, we'll bring you right back. Um, and, and they were true to their word. So I, I was able to get back to third range of battalion there at Benning. Uh, about a year after my my first assignment started uh, as a as a mech platoon leader, um, got back in the spring of 1993, and then that sequence of events uh, led up to the Somalia deployment that fall. Just out of curiosity, uh, why'd you turn over to the dark side? Um, I, I had wanted to go. <laughs> Uh, and I say that as an officer. Funny. I mean, it's I, funny people say that. I, I look. I <laughs> understand. Side, you know, yeah, it's I, interesting I, how people portray it. I, I get it. Um, like I, I say it in tongue in cheek, obviously, but still, it's like one sure, of those things yeah. where my 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 brother was a. As I mentioned, my brother was a cadet at West Point. He was commissioned in 1984. Um, when I came back from Grenada in late '83, uh, I was in the first class to go to Ranger School. Um, after Grenada, um, got done spring of 84. And I actually put a, a packet in to go to the West Point prep school, uh, that year. So I was, I was ranger qualified. I'd, I'd been to combat. Um, I mentioned earlier that I, I played more hockey than I, I went to math class in high school. So it came back to bite me. Um, so I, I had an interest before, um, and then it just, it just took a little time. Um, I, I truly enjoyed uh, being an NCO uh, in the regiment. Um, uh, so that experience was as good as it's advertised. Um, so it wasn't that easy a decision. I I was able to get accepted into OCS. And luckily, uh, I was able to get back into the regiment again. Um, th- there's no guarantee. You know, every time you leave, you have to go through that that RASP uh, rope pro- process Um of, of, of getting back into an organization that you truly believe you should uh, continue to work with. I, I, I joked when I was getting ready to retire that I, I love the regiment and all their training and they're, they're the best at what they do, but their, their admin team wasn't very good because they kept hiring me for subsequent assignments. They didn't, they didn't catch that I was slipping through the cracks. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of how I ended up as an 06, I guess, you know, you just keep hanging around uh, anyway, but uh, nonetheless, it's um, what's the biggest difference 
uh, when you get back to the Ranger Battalion as an officer versus enlisted? Like, what was the one thing that stood out to you? Like, now I'm on a, now I'm on a different different side of the the, the, the fence. Well, I thought it was a, a a very smooth transition. Actually, there, there was some acceptance there. I I had been in the regiment, which was a big bonus. Um, I, I I wore a, a, a Ranger combat patch as a second lieutenant coming back to the regiment. So there was uh, there was some uh, validity that I had been where they had been before. So I think from that aspect, uh, it, it made it allowed me to. Uh, to focus on learning some of the aspects of being a, an officer and seeing some of um, those different perspectives that I had to develop. Um, uh, but I didn't, I didn't have to try and figure out all the ins and outs of a ranger platoon because I had, I had served in all this slot. I, I, I had gone from E1 to E6 in the ranger platoon and I had a pretty good idea of, of what every one of them was supposed to be doing. So it allowed me to focus on uh, on being a, a good lieutenant and, and helping the company get better. All right. So you uh, are a platoon leader when you get to Somalia, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I was a. Uh, I I got promoted to first lieutenant um, that summer in in July, and then we deployed um, in in August of uh, of nineteen ninety three. So I was I was one of the younger lieutenants in the company. Well. Lieutenant-wise, I was I was one of the older right. people in the company because <laughs> I had I had eleven years in service. Right. Um, so when you uh, what what are you told heading to Somalia? Like what what is the expectation as you're going in? Well, I think initially there was a there was a lot of uh, a lot of unknowns. Um, we we had an initial um, training plan that we were conducting. We 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 were at Fort Bliss. Texas, uh, we were on a, a joint readiness exercise. We we were uh, the battalion that was out there doing this big exercise. We were shipped back to Fort Bragg to start this um, EDRI and, and, and potential deployment. Um, we had some uh, some growing pains with some of the initial uh, mission prep. Um, we um, it's interesting. The I, I think the Rangers are very flexible in in what they're able to do based on the foundations that they have. We, we do things over and over and that, that repetition really uh, pays big dividends. Um, so when, when it came down to mission changes and, and different platoons doing different mission sets, it was pretty easy to adjust um, our, our capabilities and needs. Uh, we, we, we were told there was a potential deployment um, to, to Somalia. We, we had been aware of the, you know, the UN problems down there. Uh, so we just didn't know how, you know, from a, from a lieutenant's perspective at the time, how, how are we getting inserted into a peacekeeping mission to try and uh, adjust the outcome of some of the current operations? Are and, and as I understand it, some of that consternation going back and forth was more from political leaders than necessarily it was from military leaders, right? It was, it was, they weren't sure how they wanted to get into the, na- the nature extent they wanted to get involved. And so you guys on the other end had to start preparing for one way and then the orders from Washington changed in, in another way, correct? That's correct. Yeah, completely. Um, we, we were just focused on doing all our mission prep and rehearsals. I think we were at Fort Bragg for about eight days and, and then we got, it got the whole mission got turned off. They actually yeah. sent us back to Fort Bliss. Um, we got put on a C5. They flew us out to Fort Bliss and we were on the ground for about 
an hour and a half. <laughs> and then you turned and around said, and went uh, back. Yeah, they said, hey, don't unpack your bags. You're getting back on the plane. We're like, it was, you know, we, again, we we're just trying to figure out well, how does this play into that whole sequence? Is this, is this part of it? Um, and then it was a pretty quick deployment, you know, after, after that turnaround. We, right. I think we were back at Bright for two days before we actually left to go down to Africa. So you get into Somalia in August. Again, Black Hawk Down doesn't happen until October 3rd. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there is a certain amount of sort of lag time um, in figuring out when and where and what you're going to do. In that lead up, I know that there were other missions conducted. There were other operations conducted um, prior to um, October 3rd. So what's sort of the tempo like for you while you're there? Yeah, so it stayed really busy. Um, we, we, we never, you know, we, we obviously want to use that time uh, of value. Um, I, I led the ground reaction force. So we had all the Humvees and, and we served as a, um, a, an operational arm for the, for the commanders to, to get a feel for what sectors of the city were more or less receptive to us moving. Um, we, we, we did convoy escort. We, we did environmentals in different parts of the city to, to try and figure out where routes were accessible, where they were not. So when we were doing mission planning, so we, we did a lot of uh, mission prep, um, a lot of convoy work. Uh, we had different mission sets being in the vehicle. So we, we had that escort mission and part of the blocking force for the major missions. Um, we, we were a backup uh, search and rescue. So we would go in and secure a, an aircraft and, and have to work from that perspective. Uh, so we had to know different parts of the town, what kind of demo charges we needed to get into different parts of facilities. Uh, and we practiced that. We, we went into different areas and, and rehearsed those. We, we tried to cut down light poles. We, we blew holes in buildings so we could get a feel for what they were made out of. We, we, we stayed really busy. We, we set up a lot of ranges. We, we, we made sure our, our young rangers were very uh, good at firing multiple weapon systems from different platforms. Uh, we, we knew we were working in the city and, and being able to shoot from a moving vehicle, shoot from underneath the vehicle, from out of windows. It, it all paid big dividends when we got in fights later during the deployment. When is the first time you as a PL hear the name Mohammed Farah Adid? Uh, before we deployed. So okay, we, we so had, you were aware. Yeah, we, we had good intel briefs um, prior to, so we, we would go in with some of the, the unit intel uh, specialists. We would get some updates on, on what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we would do some um, some little leadership exercises. The, they would pull us into the jock, uh, the, the four platoon leaders from our company. We, we, we had a pretty good working relationship with some of the folks. Uh, one of the ops officers at the unit was our battalion XO before we deployed. So he would take us to the shooting houses for OPDs as lieutenants. And we, we got a good relationship with him and, and we use that to our benefit once we got in country and he was down there as part of the leadership structure above us. Um, I'm curious, is there part of you uh, as a, and you're not really a young lieutenant. It's not fair to ask you this question because you're a lot smarter than most lieutenants. Um, and I know that because I was a young, dumb lieutenant, but you know, there's part of me that's thinking is, you know, you're talking to your, your guys and you're going, why don't we just go in there and just go get this guy? Like, what the hell are we waiting on? I mean, what are we, what are we screwing around here for? Let's just go get this guy. We'll be in and out in 20 minutes and, and we can end this thing. Is, is there any of that thought process for you? Um, well, again, I think you never want to underestimate 
um, the people that you're working against. So we, we, we were trying to get an idea of, of where Adid was. Uh, it was identified pretty early in the deployment that he had gone underground and, and we had changed our strategy shortly after arri- arrival to, to start getting some of his lieutenants and, and subordinates to try and get the, the network to speak more. If they started talking, uh, then, then we could get an idea of, of where he might be. Uh, so that, that, that strategy changed fairly quickly. And, and some of our subsequent missions after arrival were, were targeting some of his deputies and, and lieutenants in the structure. Also, also unfair to ask you, cause you, I think you had already been in combat. So, you know, that's like, you know, not how it works, right? Like it's, it's never that simple. Uh, especially when we've been through <laughs> right. live combat before. Yeah, so. well, it, and again, some of the early missions, you know, we we had uh, we had gone into some environments and gotten some pretty good firefights, so we knew it wasn't going to be a cakewalk. We weren't going to walk into their city and do whatever we wanted. We we felt comfortable because we're we're trained well and, and we have a lot of firepower. And, and I had I had eight Humvees that had you know fifty cows and Mark 19s, and, and we we had superiority when we went from point A to point B. Uh, but there, there was a lot of people in that city as well. So they, they had a vote in, uh, in, in us getting. Uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, the, the enemy, the enemy always gets a say, right. Um, yeah. I, I tell my folks that often. So, uh, and that's, that's a phrase I use in life too. You know, there, there's another part of the equation that you have to, you have to account for. Um, as you get closer to the beginning of October, is there a sense that you are getting closer to catching him or do you start to feel like, you know, you're kind of just spinning your wheels here, getting nowhere. I think the big mission in, in September was the Osman Otto was the financier. Mm-hmm. He was captured shortly before uh, the 3rd of October. So that, that was a big bonus for us because we got the guy that had all the funds. The, it, it was a bit, it was a two part mission. We missed them on one, one part. And then uh, the next mission, they, they were able to get them uh, in, in a vehicle uh, capture. Uh, so that was a, that was great timing and, and a boost for us because it was like, okay, now we've now we've got uh, the, the head financier, the XO, so to speak. We we can get a better idea for this next mission on how big the leadership team is going to be that's on the ground. So that was that was the thoughts going into the next mission on October third. Was this this is bigger because we've we've stirred the hornet's nest a little. And if you're familiar with Ridley Scott's movie Black Hawk Down, that's the opening scene where they catch general is he was i think he was told general otto at the time or whatever his rank was or however they referred to him but that's the guy that they catch at the very beginning you know he's on the phone and says i have to call you back uh and they end up capturing him that's the the first capture that they get so you kind of as you said you knew you were getting close all right what what is the for you take me through the first briefing you get about october 3rd or when you start hearing like hey this is we're, we're this close we're going after a deep yeah, so everything happens very quickly mm-hmm. um, in the the sequence. So the the other missions were were no different. They, um, I, I should have had a couple pictures. Um, they they gave us some Xerox copies of of what the targets look like. Um, they spun up the the helos would start um, running motors probably within you know ten fifteen minutes of initial alert. So it was a very quick um, sequence of events. Um, that day uh, on the third, there was a split um, of the of the element. The, we had mentioned I mentioned earlier there was convoy escort. So part of our um, Humvee element um, was on a convoy that morning and was on its way back to the facility. So we've got moving parts. We've got a mission spinning up. 
um, very similar in sequence um, for these missions. So they would they, they would get a, a target location, um, they would get an infill spot for the target building, and then uh, we would get an exfill spot identified. So all this was done uh, before launch. Uh, the the main difference on the third of October, and I, I remember the sequence on comms was um, that every mission. Leading up to the 3rd of October, there had been an identified exfil spot for the, the folks coming off the main objective. Once they fast roped in, were able to clear the objective, um, they, they would come off the target, go to a, a helo exfil, uh, or some type of exfil point. Um, on the 3rd of October, we knew because of the density, uh, of the area around the Olympic Hotel that they would have to come out of the, target location by vehicle. And that was a change uh, from all the other um, missions up to that point. So um, we knew it was a more difficult location. Again, we had been up in that area with our vehicles before. Um, and and we knew uh, upon insertion that day, uh, you know, it was, it was a 1500, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon for the insertion that day. And, and immediately there was more, more gunfire, more rocket fire than, than any of the other missions prior to that. Um, so that, that, that was the sequence leading up to that day and how, um, how that initial mission started. See, again, that's, that's the thing I learned on this one that I, I no one had ever mentioned before that the vehicle extraction was new. Um, and again, for those who aren't familiar, the idea was that they were going to put four helicopters, let the guys fast rope in. Uh, and as they get on the target building, they were going to have a Blackhawks come in and provide air cover afterwards. The vehicles roll in, pick everybody up on the ground. And they roll out on vehicle instead of, um, you know, getting back in chopters and, and, and getting out yeah. of Dodge. Um, yeah, so when all you the, all the previous missions, they had they, they had found an LZ. They had right. moved on foot, you know, 100, 150 yards sometimes uh, to a to a secondary location. The helos would come in, grab them. Uh, and then move up from there. So this mission was different uh, right from the start. And, and like I said, the, the the gunfire initially was was, was much more intense. Uh, we had a couple of guys wounded pretty early, mm-hmm. and then uh, Todd Blackburn mm-hmm. uh, was the the young ranger who missed the fast rope uh, exiting his aircraft. Uh, so that was a, a a tough injury where we had two more of our uh, Humvees with uh, Jeff Stuker had to lead those two vehicles back. Um, to the compound. Right, don't, don't get um, too far ahead yet. Don't get too far ahead yet. We're not there. Hold on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, because well, there's there's a lot of lot of stuff I'm curious about because I, I, you know, you had talked about how you had been out in the city before and you had drove around, you drove drove around and, and you kind of knew the lay of the land. So when they tell you this new plan, is there a a sort of sinking feeling in your stomach going? Well, I don't know if this works out the way they think it's going to, uh, that we have to drive in and out of this place because we're talking about a whole different level of, of enemy resistance that we hadn't had before. Sure. Uh, I think the resistance piece of it was the unknown variable. Uh, so that, that, that really was the big difference. We, we had done a ground infill night mission. With a smaller package, we had aircraft off to a diversion, off to our flank. We were able to hit a target, and then we drove back out that same night. But it was it was two o'clock in the morning. We we had gone in. We we had done our uh, our mission. Uh, so that one was a little off. Uh, but this one was daylight. It was it was three o'clock. It was mm-hmm. 
it, it, there was a lot of variables there that 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 could have had um, you know a, a, a negative impact on, on that mission planning. Again, I'm, I'm not saying it was a it was a bad call. We, we had done half of our missions in daylight and and half of our missions at night up to that point. So it wasn't it wasn't breaking any sequence that we had set up, um, but it was it was just a different environment because of that part of the city. Yeah, and, and again, that's you know. It's so easy to sharpshoot this plan, you know, over 20 years later and uh, and and look at the holes that were in it. And I, I just, you know, I don't know if it's a benefit of hindsight or not um, that you look back at it. Uh, you know, was there 100 percent faith in, in, in the in the entirety of the plan that it could be executed, given what you knew you were up against? Yeah. Um, and again, like you said, we, we've done a lot of AAR work and, and lessons learned. And sure. we, uh, we, we had made a decision based on earlier missions in the sequence that if you went in in the daylight, we wouldn't take night vision goggles. They, they were just trying to cut the load, the weight on the, the soldiers. So they, uh, they, they had made those decisions. And then uh, you know, once, um, once this mission takes a turn, um, then it really has a, a big impact. Uh, um, again, there wasn't a lot of intel that showed um, a large influx of weapon systems or RPGs. So it, it wasn't like we we walked into something knowing that it was going to be a big bolt that day. Um, you know, could they have done this on a mission prior? Possibly. Um uh, why they picked the third of October, you know, we, we don't know. Uh, but um, you know, there's there there there's there's a lot of variables there in, in a daylight mission that um, you know, we, we we could have controlled differently. But but again, that that was the mission that we went on, and and um, you know, it, it changed very quickly uh, once that first Blackhawk was hit. Okay, so your specific role um, in this whole operation is what. I was the ground reaction force platoon leader. So I led the eight Humvees that were part of the initial infill. And then the Humvees that were on the ground trying to get to both of the down uh, Blackhawks once the two Blackhawks were hit. Um, at but so 15, basically, 30, though. 16, 15. So very, very shortly after um, the two Blackhawks went in, our elements were split trying to get to the two different crash sites. Okay. I, I was going to ask you. So specifically, you were actually uh, you were on the, the vehicle convoy that was going to get everybody out, or as the ground reaction force, you were in waiting to be told to go in when something went wrong. No, nope, the whole again, I, I, we were split that morning, mm-hmm. um, so there was a couple of vehicles. I, I was in one of the vehicles that was on the way back to the airfield, so we were able to join the mission on the fly. Um, but the whole vehicle element deploys with the the air air package as well. So the perimeter, the perimeter is set up where there's a target building in the center where the operation happens. The, there's a fast rope teams that are inserted at the four corners of those, that block that mm-hmm. the building's on. And then the Humvees in two sets uh, or, or sets of two in four. So it's a, it's a building um, security perimeter. So there's a building there's an initial perimeter with the guys that fast roped on the ground. And then there's a second perimeter with the Humvees and the 50 cows and Martin. So it just grows a little bit out of that 
that initial package. Uh, and it's a twofold. Uh, so our, our goal with the Humvees and Mark 19s are to try and get anybody from coming into the um, target area and any uh, potential people leaving the target area. So any squirters, any bad guys that we're looking for on the objective trying to run. Uh, we also had a, a, a mission to, to, to keep an eye both directions for people coming front and back. So. All right. So take me through um, the events as they unfold for you. Uh, you know, choppers are moving in. Uh, and, and, you know, before Blackburn misses the ropes, obviously, but you're hearing what on the radio, your, your communications or what, uh, you're, are you driving into the city at this point in time? Kind of take me through all that. Yeah. So I am, I am, uh, I am actually at the jock, uh, okay. on I- initial insertion. Um, so we are, we are monitoring the, uh, the initial engagements. We had some people wounded fairly quickly. Uh, we had one of our guys was hit on the ground, um, shortly after insertion. So that was one of the first guys wounded. And then Blackburn was obviously at that same time sequence. Um, that, that sequence happened very quickly as, as Blackburn is moved uh, from the target area back towards the airfield. That's when the sequence of Blackhawks started to happen as well. So uh, Todd's, Blackburn, uh, Jeff Struker, the two vehicles are moving back towards the airfield. Um, Dominic Pila uh, was one of my um, troops. Uh, Dominic was one of the first guys killed that day um, in that firefight coming back to the airfield. Um, so they get back to the airfield um, shortly. Uh, they might have been simultaneous. Um, they arrive at the airfield Um the first aircraft, uh, Cliff Walcott's aircraft, goes down just north of the Olympic Hotel target building. Um, they get the first one down. Uh, that causes the sequence of events on the ground um, where the Rangers on foot that were in the blocking position to move to crash site one to secure the perimeter around that building. Um, Bob Gallagher uh, was my platoon sergeant. Um, he was leading the northernmost convoy, and he's short vehicles even more now with Sucre gone, and then the other two vehicles um, at the jock. Um, shortly after, uh, they move uh, towards uh, crash site one is when uh, Mike Durant's aircraft was hit uh, and goes in uh, just south of the Olympic Hotel. Uh, Are you on ground to see any of this? I mean, what's your viewpoint? What are you um, seeing yeah, as it unfolds? So as you, unless you're watching for that aircraft, it, it, it happens very quickly. And, and there's, there's video footage of it now. So if you were anywhere in the city where the buildings were around you, you couldn't see it. You know, the, the guys right. that were there, they said they didn't see it go down. They had an idea of the area that it went down in. So they were able to move. Um, could, could you could tell you, that it went down? Like, did you hear an explosion? Did you hear it hit the ground from, from your viewpoint? Yes. The, okay. the second one, you could hear it when it went in. Um, it was a little bit farther south. Uh, did not hear the first one. Um, but again, at that point, there's there's a lot of movement on the ground. Yeah, there's, a lot, of, there's, there's a lot of firing going on. I was going to say there's pure chaos. Um, and there's a lot of helicopters in the air, too. So right. there's, you know, there's, a, there's a pretty robust package. I want to say there's six or seven uh, Blackhawks, uh, four or five Little Birds, and then the AH is providing the gun support. So there's 
there's there's a lot of moving parts uh, going on. One hundred percent. Okay. Um, I always like to recount this moment because I'm just curious if you had heard it, but. Jeff Stroker was a previous guest on the Hazard Ground, and he talked about that moment where Dominic Pillow was was shot and killed. Uh, and he talks about that moment when he said it on the radio, like there was nonstop radio chatter going on. And as soon as he announced that Pillow was KIA, everything got sound on the radio. I mean, it's just like, it, it, did you hear that whole transaction take place on the radio? Yeah, so we we, we were always maintaining the radio comms and the and that's one thing we, we, we never say any names. You never you never give a, a name. You you give a unit. You you give a, a code name. Whatever you have to do. Maybe a, a target location if somebody's near there. But um, you know, Jeff. It was just the circumstances. It was everything that was going on at the time. Um, we knew that there was a casualty coming back to the airfield um, and and whose vehicle it was. So um, that was a, a very difficult situation with. Um, the second Blackhawk had just gone in. Jeff had just got back with Blackburn in that vehicle with Pila, who had been killed in that vehicle. Um, so at that point, they're, they're cross-loading these casualties. They're getting people into the combat support hospital. Um, and, and, and then, um, the four vehicle package that's there at the airfield, uh, immediately launches to go to, uh, Mike Durant's aircraft. So to flip the switch for those kids, uh, Jeff Stuker and the guys that were in his vehicle, hey, let's clean this vehicle up. Let's change our focus. Let's go back out there and help the guys the best we can. So these, these guys are going through a lot uh, in a very short sequence of events. Um, but it's um, it, it's a testament to them and their training and their interest in in helping out the task force at that point. Now, again, you didn't see the first bird go down. Do you hear the call on the radio, Blackhawk down? Yes. Okay. Does that for you trigger something? And, you know, obviously, again, you, you, you know what happened to Blackburn. At the, by this time, you know what happened or, or sequentially, does the Blackhawk go down first and then Pillow gets killed or is it the other way around? It's a Pillow first. Okay. Uh, and then so the Blackhawk. as I was saying, so you, you've heard yeah. about Blackburn. Now you've heard about Pillow and now the helicopter goes down. Is there a sense of overwhelming? Oh, shit. Like, you know, now we, we, we are in this thing longer than we ever expected. I mean, do you feel I, like I the tide was, is turning against you, I guess is the way to phrase it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. And, and I think, um, very quickly it changed the dynamic in, you know, and I, 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 I do a, a leadership talk and I, I talk to some of the young ROTC kids. And uh, when, when you, when you go into an objective, um, you're always taught by the Intel guys, you know, here's your target. You, you have superiority. You have the, the combat power, you, you have all the analysis to go in there and do well. Uh, so you always go in there with a positive mindset. You go on to the objective, um, you you hit the target, you, you you sweep the objective, you get what you need and you come out. Uh, this was different this day because we went back into the city on subsequent uh, trips to get our casualties and to get back out to where our people were trapped at those two crash sites. So this one changed dynamic because we weren't going into that fresh environment anymore. Uh, we knew every time we went in uh, that we were going to get our noses bloodied again and have to go back in and, and, and continue to fight. It wasn't it wasn't as um, straightforward as the initial brief about our capabilities right. versus their capabilities. So. I, uh, I wonder, um, and again, you know, Mark Bowden does such an incredible job, who, oh, by the way, was on this podcast as well. You know, uh, I, I forget the philosopher he, he quotes, but, you know, he talks about how 
you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can get any man to go into battle once, but asking him to go back in return after what he's seen is a nearly insurmountable task. For you guys, I mean, you repeatedly had to do that. Is there any point in your head where you're going, I'm going to die tonight? Like, this is the end of it. I think it takes on, a, and again, our, our mission was to uh, to get our task force in our vehicles up to those two crash sites to help. We, we knew what our mission was, and, and we needed the support structure put in place to do that. So um, it, you mentioned earlier, we're, we're just lieutenants, but we know we have to get from point A to point B. And we have to help our guys up there. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, so just, go, we're just lieutenants. We're not everybody that. And, and, and let us get up there. You know, so it was... I'm like, okay, I'm going to put on my, my lieutenant hat and, and we're going to go up and do this. Um, but th- there's a lot of variables there and, and that changes pretty quickly. Um, our, our, our task force uh, is, like I said, we're, we're split at that point. We're going into two different crash sites and the, and the enemy at this point knows um, where we're going. Um, you know, Initially, we're going into insert on objectives. They don't have an idea of exactly where the target building is. Um, but once the Blackhawks go down, they have a rallying point. You know that they don't have elaborate communications, and they're not maneuvering troops on radios. But you know they're lighting they're lighting uh, tires on fire yep. in intersections to get a smoke plume that everybody's coming to. Uh, so that's their that's their signal fire. So you know we we quickly realized as we were trying to get to these two crash sites that um, that that they had an interest in us not getting to those crash sites. Now, so was- for clarification purposes. The lost convoy, that's not yours, right? Yeah, I, I, I disagree with the lost convoy premise. Okay. okay. Um, Why? It, it, is, it, is, it is very difficult to maneuver a, a convoy on the ground from a C-2 aircraft above that's, that's taking fire from every side. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there wasn't, a, to me, there was two separate convoys that were moving, uh, trying to get to two separate aircraft. But, but neither one of them were lost. Um, they, well, also, they were there were a lot of block- there were a lot of road blockages as well that that couldn't be seen from above, right? Right. Yeah. So there, there were there were roadblocks that were set up, um, and that's part of the reason we linked up with the coalition forces with the tanks to help us bust through some of that and the, the you know the BTRs. Um, but initially, when we went in, um, it, it wasn't it wasn't like we could drive um, straight through from point A to point B. We right. were. We, we would get to an intersection and they would have a, you know, you're, you're, you're not on there. the highway here. <laughs> and, yeah. And we had to, we had to make a big diversion to get around to where that crash site was. So it was a, it, it was, a, it was changing on the fly as we're, as we're gaining more and more casualties in our vehicles, trying to get to these, uh, these two different crash sites. Which crash site do you ultimately end stationed at for like the next 18 hours? I mean, so initially we, uh, the, the northern vehicle element with with uh, Bob Gallagher and his team were up by crash site one, which is close. And then my vehicles, mm-hmm. Jeff Strucker and I were in the south, uh, going towards Mike Durant's aircraft. We were closer than we thought we were, um, and we're at, and we're we're we had to turn back just based on the volume of fire we were receiving. Um, and we we came around from another direction to go north. Uh, we were uh, instructed at that point to link up all of the ground forces at, and then crossload the casualties. There was a couple of vehicles that were um, almost immobile. We had to, we destroyed a couple of vehicles in the street 
but we had to get casualties back before nightfall. And that's when we got the word from the jock that we were going to reconfigure. We were going to link up with 214 from the 10th Mountain um, and the coalition forces to go back out from the Newport facility. So it was a, that was about 18, 1900 at that point at, at, at nightfall. Uh, and then we moved over to the Newport facility and started this new configuration with the, with the additional elements. So you ended up with, with where the 10th Mountain was and the coalition forces prepping to go in later, right? Is that my understanding you correctly? You personally? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we, we all came back to the airfield. Um, the 10th Mountain came down to the airfield. They were not at our facility. They were up by the embassy compact mm-hmm. complex. We all met at the airfield and then we went over to the east. Uh, to the Newport facility where the coalition forces were. And that's where we did our mission planning there. Uh, it was a, it was a whirlwind of training folks with night vision goggles who yeah. hadn't used night vision. There was a lot of stuff going on in a short period of time. Uh, again, to leave the compound to get up to where those two crash sites were. Okay. So um, before we get to the, um, the 10th mountain going in, because I know that took a little bit of time actually before they started to actually move. Uh, I'm curious are you aware, I know you keep talking about how much more gunfire and how much more enemy resistance you were seeing. Are you aware to any, at any point of the level of casualties you guys are sustaining? Um, yes. And we, we are getting uh, constant communications about numbers of casualties on the objective. So there's, there's, we know there's a series of casualties in the buildings near crash site one, um, the majority of the people that have moved on foot from the, the initial target building, uh, they, ha- they had gone over to crash site one mm-hmm. and secured some buildings and, and were had set up aid stations, trauma spots there to work on a, a series of casualties. But, yeah. So we, we were aware of the amount of casualties. Uh, uh, Sea bird was uh, sent in to try and drop some medical resupplies. It was shot up pretty bad. They realized that they couldn't get any more uh, resupply uh, medical supplies in there. Um, so, uh, again, we, we, we were paying pretty close attention to uh, those calls for help. And, and, again, that was tough for us because we knew those were some of our guys. And, and you know, we, we were yeah, like, that's, hey, let's, that's, that's where I was going next. Element and let's, let's go north and get up there. Let's, I mean, that's got to be gut-wrenching um, to hear that all these guys are down there wounded and you're kind of just stalled trying to get back into this thing, um, you're, you're chomping at the bit, obviously, to, to be able sure. to start yeah. rolling. What? Yeah, they were they were moving IVs from one guy to the next to try and keep these guys. It was a, it was a, it was a nightmare situation. So it, it was difficult, but we, we knew we had to do the right prep, um, and, and we were being told we had to do the right prep. Uh, we were anxious to get out there. We wanted to make sure our guys were anxious to get out there for the right reasons. Um, so there's, there's a lot of leadership variables going on there at the same time. So we, we, we know a, we're going to go back out here and we're going to get into another fight. Um, but we, we have to keep our focus on getting to these crash sites, getting all our people accounted for and getting out of there. What time does the actual convoy with the 10th mountain roll back out? Now, again, just to kind of put it all together, uh, you had yeah, one you had went in at three o'clock in the afternoon. You had mentioned nightfall had come. You you evac some of the casualties and got them out before nightfall. But now it's dark, and you guys are with the tenth mountain trying to rearm, refit, reorganize, and get back out there. What time ultimately do you guys leave? It was it was right around um, eleven o'clock. So it, it was just before twenty three hundred. 
Yeah, twenty three hundred okay. um, before we roll out of the compound. And did, and did that, that four hours feel like an eternity? Um, it did, but again, it was there was a there was a lot going on. We were moving, we were we were reconfiguring. A lot of people got moved into different vehicles that they had never been in. Uh, we're trying to get additional equipment. We're trying to resupply. We're trying to make sure we have the right medical packages. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going into the equations here before we launch to make sure we've got everything that this 80 man element that's stuck in these buildings north of us need. The the um, general Garrison had said it succinctly uh, when the first Blackhawk went down that we just lost the initiative. Uh, at any point in time, are you still like? Did your mind shift from? we're going to get bad guys to, we got to go get our guys. Like, I mean, like what's that shift like from going from an assault to a search and rescue? Yeah. Yeah. Once the, once the first Blackhawk went down, that was the switch. So and then it was, we, we had comms with our guys that were on foot that were, that were at that target. Unless we, there, there's no way they're getting out of there unless we get up there to get them. Uh, so that, that, that changed pretty quickly, that dynamic. So uh, the, the two trips that we made in during the daylight, and then we come down, we link up with, um, you know, the 10th Mountain and the coalition forces. So 11, 11-ish, uh, we, we flow out of the compound, and it was a constant fight. Um, it was about three hours to move um, a little less than two miles, um, just based on the intensity of the gunfire. Um, Even with it tanks? It was building to building. Yeah, building to building. Um, they knew every time we came around a the corner, they would engage. Uh, it was a... It was just a constant fight. And and one of my fellow platoon leaders that was in one of the buildings, he said, we could tell you were coming and you were getting closer based on the volume of fire. So we, we knew you were on your way and it just got more and more intense as we moved up to the two crash sites. Is there any point in time you feel like you're overwhelmed, like you're going to be overwhelmed or overrun, given the, the um, amount of gunfire you keep seeing? Uh, n- no, um the, the the only question we had, and again, we, we we're continuing to get some casualties along the way. Um, we we are. Uh, I was in a Humvee still, um, n- not an up armored Humvee either. Right. So <laughs> our our gunners, I, I give those guys a ton of credit. They they deserve every bit of the heroism that they earned. Um, they you know, they were up there in open turrets, uh, continuing to return fire. Somebody would get wounded, the next guy would jump up and take it. Uh, so th- those were just some of the heroic actions. Uh, but it, I don't think it was a, a we're we're gonna we're gonna run out of ammo. We're getting overwhelmed. We we continued to move, and we knew what our goal was. The the AH six support um, the Little Birds mm-hmm. were tremendous. Um, well, they they're doing strafing runs over, all night, directly right? Overhead, uh, yeah. So they they had two teams of two that flew from uh, you know shortly after the the. the the second Blackhawk went in. So they flew, they flew about 18 hours themselves. So there was no crew rest. They, the only time they were on the ground was to rearm or refuel. And they flew constant all, all night long to, to provide us the support. So we were, we were clearing routes. We were clearing, clearing buildings, market targets for them with our FOs. So it, it was a, it was a constant fight to, uh, to get up to those uh, uh, two, two locations. Part of me, and again, uh, for, forgive my na- naivete here, because you know Hollywood does a great job sometimes. At uh, but you know that's got to be such a relieving feeling watching one of those things run through and just waste everything in its path. Yeah, they're they're tremendous, uh, and and those guys, you know, Randy Jones and the the, the team um, that, that provided that support. They they you know they we 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 owe all of them um, 
for, for, for keeping us moving that night. Um, you know, obviously the, the AC 130 would have made a huge difference. Uh, that was a decision that was made not to deploy with us. Uh, so that, yeah. that, that is our, our normal firepower flat platform that, that would have had a big impact on, yeah. on the 3rd of October. Washington and all their infinite wisdom, right? Uh, yeah. Leave it to a guy in a suit in an office to uh, decide combat power. Uh, right. Yeah, and General Garrison fought that the whole time we were down there. You know, he asked for bigger armored vehicles and the ACs to come back, but it was time, it was just denied and denied. So, uh, but again, it was the it was the fight we were in. Um, the, the the one thing you know, once we made it to the two crash sites, we knew that we were going to be there for a while. We we made the decision that they were gonna um, they were gonna remove uh, Walcott. Um, from the aircraft. Uh, so uh, that was a long process. The, right. the aircraft had buckled around him and uh, his co-pilot. So it just took a long time. What, what time the do you... The variable there. The, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I, I just wanted to say, I know you said, and again, I want you to finish what you were just saying, but you said it took almost three hours to go two miles. So you leave at 2300. Now it's two, two o'clock in the morning, wherever you are, when you get on ground. Uh, is that yeah. the officially the time like you start settling in the crash site and that's when they start trying to remove Cliff Walcott out and everything else? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So around two, uh, two, two thirty, we get to the two crash sites. We, we, we were in a middle road on national street. It was like right in between the two. So we split into two different elements. A big part of it went up North cause that's where the majority of the casualties were. And they were going to get cross loaded into the, the armored vehicles. Um, so the, the big part of the mission at that point was was recovery, wounded, uh, crossload, and then uh, removing uh, the, the folks from the aircraft that had buffled. Um, the, the tough part was as, as time started to pass, you know, we we had some um, we had the benefit of darkness. Our vehicles were completely uploaded with all our night vision, uh, so we were able to do pretty good through the night, um, engaging and marking targets uh, for the age. Um, but once the sun started to come up in the morning. Uh, it was almost the you know, the great equalizer. The our our advantage uh, of the the night vision and capabilities uh, started to diminish, and, and we knew as soon as we start as soon as it started coming up, they knew where we were sitting, and the you know the fighting started to get more intense again. Uh, until we were able to start the movement of that task force towards the Pakistani soccer stadium. So again, let me just kind of for you, you know, the insertion time is fifteen hundred. Let's just say for argument's sake, it's 1400. So it's literally 12 hours later that you finally get back to the crash site. Uh, have you even thought about the level of exhaustion that you have at this point? No, not at all. And, and again, that's that, um, the, the, the training piece, the adrenaline piece, you know, it's a survival mechanism that kicks in and, and you, um, you, you, you know, you have a mission to conduct, but it, you know, you don't really think about it. You, uh, you, I think you drink some water. You, you're not eating. You're, you're you're fighting for survival at that point. Right. So you you know where your guys are. You got to get there. And well, you saw that once once this is all done, you know the guys are the guys are like passing out because they they've been on an adrenaline for 24 right. hours. By the time we finally get back to the airfield, and and some of those guys were you know basically camped in the building at night for the most part, obviously tending to some of their wounded and just holding their position uh, mm-hmm. until you guys get there. When you do you know? Do you finally interact with people on the ground when you see them there? I mean, is there handshakes? Is it boy glad to see you guys kind of deal, or what sort of the? Yeah, well, there was still there was still some engagement. So again, everybody was good with the link up. Um, there was some miscommunications with some of the the, the elements at that one of the um, the Malaysian APC units at sun up at sunrise. They they thought sunrise was their uh, their exfil timeline. Uh, so part of the 
exfil package left before everybody was completely uploaded. So again, we were we were working with some tough variables there. Um, it, there was there was a lot of um, interest in seeing everybody, but we still had a we still had a fight going on where we had to we had to get everybody out of the two crash sites to uh, that soccer stadium. I think once we got to the stadium, which was you know back around to the east and then north to the Pakistani stadium, when when you finally realized the the entire scope of of what had happened. So that's the first time since three o'clock the day before that the entire task force is back together and seeing the amount of casualties and, and wounded and, and killed uh, all in one location. So it was a constant flow. The, the medevac choppers were coming into the stadium uh, with some cover provided by the stadium walls, uh, you know, being able to uh, get them exfiled back to the combat support hospital. Um, but it was, it, it was a really tough um, scene at that point to see yeah. the, the scope of it all. I, I want to get to that, but I, w- I want to go back for a moment because again, you know, the sun comes up, what, six, seven o'clock in the morning there. Yeah. The fire starts again. The volley of fire from the enemy starts again. Uh, how ultimately do you personally get out and what time is it? Uh, yeah, I, w- I want to say, you know, seven, seven thirty when the vehicle started rolling, we, we move. Um, there, there's that the, the Mogadishu mile, the, the guys on foot that are coming off the objective. They, they don't have a vehicle to get in. So they're running uh, and, uh, Jeff Struker and I made a decision to go back in there with vehicles without a lot of support at that point to pick up a bunch of guys and just get them in the back of vehicles, uh, pile them in, you know, so, so nobody's on foot because we got a pretty good length to move still, uh, to get up to the Pakistani stadium. So it was probably a 40 minute, um, 30, 40 minute fight from the, the target point up to the stadium. There's some sporadic fire, but you know, they, we were getting out of there at that point. So it, you know, our thought was if you're if you're coming out to see what's going on, then you're you're coming to the wrong place. So, you know, don't don't come out as a spectator this morning. We're getting out of here. So, um, so wait, the Mogadishu mile doesn't end at the stadium. It does not. No, they were able to. See, it's a, it, it would have been it would have been longer than a mile. That was a that was a little <laughs> bit of Hollywoodism. But it, they they were moving from the target building to a, a location when when everybody was put into vehicles before they moved. So, and so you were part of the crew that, yeah. met, that met up with them yeah. and, pull, and pulled them on. See again something so else. So we uh, we get up to the stadium uh, probably noon fourteen hundred uh, that that day um, before everybody's exfilled, um, and then I get uh, I. Our vehicles are just all shot to shit. Um, we, we, we get up to the, 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 the stadium and I'm like, I don't ever want to get in a Humvee again. <laughs> I'm like, I've had enough. And then the, the boss says, Hey, Larry, you know, we want you to, we want you to get ready. We gotta, we gotta exfil the vehicles. You can go up to the north and around and we'll get you some air support. So he's like, you guys got to drive around the city and come back down to the airfield with the Humvee so we can get them fixed up and ready to go. Are you looking at him like he's nuts? I'm like, I just want to leave him here. (laughs) Uh, So we were able to um, go. We, again, we had been up there a few times uh, up to the North. It it was, it was pretty wide open up there. So we were able to um, get the vehicles um, back to, uh, to the airfield. So the the maintenance guys could do a lot of work on. You had mentioned uh, you get to the stadium, you start to realize the scope of how many people are injured. Uh, and or killed at this point. What are the thoughts running through your mind? Right. And again, I, I think part of it is the, you know, the, the, the amount of people in the, 
and you're giving an idea because now you've got you've got the faces, you've got the people that are missing, you've got the, you've got the, the bodies. Uh, some of them have been evac already, uh, so it's still trying to piece some of that together. But it was it was very difficult um, uh, throughout the day um, with our, our initial entries into the city. We had lost guys as well. So one of the difficult things that I thought um, was. Uh, again, uh, the identification piece, um, uh, identifying bodies, um, that, that's always a, a difficult task for anybody. Um, one of the young soldiers of mine, um, I, my, uh, my dog just got put in his kennel. So if you hear a, a, a weird noise, it's not me. <laughs> there you go. Um, the, um, sorry, um, Lorenzo Ruiz was one of my guys, uh, he had been wounded during the day, was at the combat support hospital. Before I launched to go out for the night, um, I went in and checked on the guys for a minute. And he gave me a thumbs up. Hey, go get them, sir. Um, and then he seemed um, he seemed pretty with it. Uh, he, had a, he had a pretty bad wound, uh, but you know, he, he, he was very aware, uh, cognizant of what was going on. He knew that there was still a mission to be accomplished. And uh, we found out the next morning that he had passed before he made it to Stuttgart uh, or to launch tool. Uh, to to the big air to the big hospital there, uh, so those were the difficult pieces because we had we had people at the combat support hospital. We had people that had been um, uh, already medevaced out of country. So so there, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts and, and a lot of things to try and piece together. Uh, so it was it, it was tough for the team. Uh, and again, this was an amazing team effort, um, um, but it, it was tough for the team not to be together to to mourn together, so to speak, uh, because uh, we had a, we had a lot of missing uh, pieces of the puzzle. I mean, I can't imagine the gravity of that, um, especially for, you know, a young officer um, charged with a lot and responsibility, right? I mean, as much as we joked before about lieutenants, it still is a pretty awesome responsibility that we give them to put the lives of, of young soldiers in their hands uh, and say, here, protect these people and bring them home safe. Uh, and, you know, when that doesn't happen, uh, are you capable at this point of understanding sort of the gravity of, of everything that has gone on or that doesn't come to like yeah, much I, later? I think so. That, you know, there's, yeah. There's nothing worse than that loss. That, that there's a, there's a saying that I've heard. It's a, you know, there's no, no greater honor than leading Rangers in battle and there's no worse feeling than losing them. Um, so there, there's that, there's that, that highs and lows of that, um, that perspective. Um, you know, it, it is, it is amazing uh, to be able to serve in a unit like that, it's amazing to be able to, uh, to lead people of that caliber. But we are tasked with training them, with preparing them, with with bringing people home. And, and when you can't, it, it really changes that whole dynamic. Um, you had mentioned you got back to the stadium. It was the first time the entire task force was together, except <laughs> one guy, uh, Mike Duran, who is still captured and in captivity for the next 11 days. When do you find out that that – uh, Mike Durant is not with you guys. Yeah. So later that day, they, they are still looking for, there's a couple bodies that had been taken from one of the aircraft. Right. Yeah. Um, the bodies were turned over and, and then it was identified that Mike was still alive and being held. Um, so, um, you know, General Garrison gave us a brief, um, you know, we, we had come back. Um, I want to say that day we had, we had a little bit of time. Um, there was still a bunch of people that were being evacuated. And uh, you know, General Garrison, General Garrison gave us a brief the next day that, hey, if we get a positive identification of where Mike Durant is, we're going after him. He said, we we know we, we just got our news bloodied and, and we were in a big fight, but 
we, we have to go get Mike if we can figure out where he is. And so we, we immediately started training on a new focus to, you know, to go after this, uh, this POW mission. So it was, uh, it, it was pretty intense. Uh, it was two or three days later when some of the additional folks started coming into country, uh, another ranger company, another, um, another special ops unit, some mech folks from the third ID. So we had some additional firepower and equipment, uh, but then they turned, they, they ended up turning Mike over, uh, yeah. um, 11 days later, we had a little ceremony at the airfield, um, with, uh, we all lined up at the ramp with a shot of whiskey, um, uh, to, to put him on the C-141 when he flew out. So it was pretty powerful. So. At what point after all this ends, uh, and again, less than a month later, everybody's out of Somalia. At least all the Americans, I mean. The American forces are out of Somalia. Um, let me ask you your thoughts on being forced to leave. Uh, did you think, it, you know, at the time, and I'm only asking you your opinion at the time, did you think it was the right decision? Well, and again, we're, we're, we're from a tactical perspective, we're, we're conducting, um, specific mission sets. Um, I, I think at that point, um, you know, if, if there's not a follow on mission, if, you know, if, if we've got Durant, you know, we, uh, our, our company had been pretty beat up. I don't know if we had, if we would have been removed and then another unit take our place as a relief in place kind of mission. So. That, that might have been something that was thought of. Um, I, you know, I, I personally, um, I think when the guys get in a fight like that, it's, it's hard to keep them focused on their mission at hand. You know, if we, when we were training to go back in to get Mike Durant, you know, do the guys want to go back in to get Mike or do they want to go back in to get revenge, uh, get some revenge yeah. for a couple of their buddies that they lost? You know, so there, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into those equations. And I, I think the, you know, the higher up leadership, um, you know, made some good decisions. Uh, you know, would we have liked to stay to, to finish it? Yes, because it, it gives it gives more validity to the mission and to uh, what the task force was put together for uh, to to conduct that final mission and, and make it happen. But that's not the way it works for us. Is there a point in time, whether it's when you get back or even when you are still in Somalia before you leave, where? Um, all of this sort of hits you in one shot, like the, the scope of the entire operation and everything that's gone on. And, you know, of course, again, you see the, the people. And I remember as a kid, I was young, but, you know, the idea of the uh, about American soldiers' bodies being dragged through the streets and everything else. And, I mean, uh, again, this is the first time sort of war has been on TV, really, in reality, at least since Vietnam. Um, and right. so, you know, uh, every, everything else, every other operation, even Urgent Fury was kind of under relative cloak of darkness, right? Um, it was done in relative obscurity. This was not. It, it ended up being something that was very public. So uh, for you, I mean, what was it like grasping this whole entire thing? Yeah, I think I think that aspect of it, you know, it, it took a little while. There was still so much going on. And there was still so much emotion that it, there was one, one instance, and in, in I'll share it just for a minute, but it, it was probably two days two days of constant evacuating um, casualties out of the combat support hospital and different, um, different levels of injuries and, and trauma. Um, and I, I had gone in to see a couple of the guys before they flew out. And there was a young female flight medic who 
was sitting on a set of sandbags outside of one of the buildings. She was just covered in blood. And and this is just someone who is there in a, in a support role that's helping us um, that had, like we, we went into that location understanding that we may get in a fight like that. But, but these, these people who provide the additional support, like I, I sat with her for probably an hour and a half um, and she was, she, you know, everything that she had done to try and make a difference. She, she felt like it didn't work. And, and it was really, it was really difficult to, to sit there because she had put so much time and effort into helping guys that she had no idea who they were. Um, but, but again, that's, that's part of these, these roles and missions. And, and I think that, that the scope of what this task force and the support people and, and everything went through, um, that's when you start piecing all that together. Um, you know, when we get back to the States and we start finally getting our people back together, it, we, it was, it was probably 45 days, 60 days before guys were coming back from Walter Reed or coming back from Germany. Um, it took a long time to really get some of that healing going where you've got the, the group back together. But I think there's some instances where it, it really was solidified. It, it, this was, this was a mission that, you know, 18 year old kids shouldn't have to go through. Uh, right. that this was the, you know, the, the, there was a young kid. Terry Butler was one of the young kids in, in my platoon. He, he came in the army like, like that February of 1993, <laughs> 18 years old out of, out of Alabama. And, and this is his first deployment. And this is, and this is what he has to go through. Um, and it's, and it's tough. It's tough as a leader. It's, it's tough as a, um, as a subordinate, you know, his, his immediate leadership, but it, it's, it's great to see them now at reunions to, to see them and the positives that they take from it and how they're able to build on that as, uh, as they live their lives now in second careers or with their families. And, and they come back together for these reunions to, to talk about it with other warfighters that they were with. So it's, it's really special. When you started uh, getting together and, and piecing together different pieces of the battle and different pieces of information, was there anything anybody told you that sticks out that you were kind of surprised by and like, oh, that, that, that happened? Or, or, you know, I had no clue that that went on kind of deal. Was there any parts that people filled you in about the battle that you were just completely unaware of? Um, I, I think there was some of the, the AAR work. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of AAR lessons learned trying to, trying to get ready for that, that next mission set. Uh, there was some variables in there, but I, I think we were pretty good about communicating um, everything that was going on. There, there was some questions on who did what or, or who did you know, what to who, you know, how did that guy get wounded in a certain circumstance? You know, so there was, there was some of those unknowns, but, but again, that's part of that, that battle fog. Uh, some of those, some of those you'll never get answers for. Um, but I, I think the, the unit did a pretty good job of, of understanding roles and missions and, and how everything worked out that night. You get a couple of months removed from all this. Was there any part of you that was feeling like, uh, yeah, I'm going to go change careers now, or, or were you more like reinvigorated by being a ranger at that point in time? I, I think it further solidified, Hey, this, this is really, this is really a place that, that I like in that, that I, I, I want to continue to serve. Um, you know, it was, Again, it was it was less than a year later. Um, we were getting ready to jump into Haiti to do this all over again. So it was a constant affirmation that hey, we we selected this, we got in this fight, we we we, we continue to prep for the next one, and, and we want to get better and better. I I kept a picture of one of my guys on my desk uh, from his burial service that hey, th- this is a reminder 
of, of why we do what we do, because we want to get better. We don't want to have to go through this, uh, some of these uh, circumstances again. So it was, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, you, you mentioned the 10 years. Um, I'll just fast forward a little bit again. Um, the three of the, three of the platoon leaders from that company in Somalia were sitting at a table in Bagram in 2001, getting ready to go into Afghanistan in different capacities with different ranks on our collars, um, you know, in the same task force. Uh, so it was, it's interesting how it all works out. But I think th- those type of missions solidified the work that we wanted to do going forward. Uh, just one or two more here on Somalia and I'll, we'll move forward. Um, and I ask this of everybody because I, I, you know, I'm a student of leadership and, you know, after 20 plus years of wearing a uniform, I feel like it's something that I'm, excel at and understand very well and the nuances of it. Uh, General Garrison obviously writes a letter taking full responsibility for the entire outcome of the raid. Uh, And everybody I have spoken to has said nothing but glowing things about General Garrison. I'm just curious your thoughts on what he said was, you know, his responsibility letter and what he said and kind of your thoughts on just him as a leader. Yeah, General Garrison was he was a, a, a leader's leader. Um, he was a great role model for us. You know, he was as a, as a young Lieutenant, he was echelons and echelons above people that we wanted to run into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, he, he was great for us. He, he would, he had OPDs just for the Ranger Lieutenant. So he would pull us up into the jock every once in a while and sit the four or five of us down and just talk to us as people. Um, and it was really powerful that, that the, that the JSOC commander, a two-star who, who had one of the most decorated um, careers um, would, would sit us down and give us that time. So it really meant a lot to us to be a part of that. I, I, I served later as a captain and major as the executive officer to the JSOC commander. So I, I later served in that role in that office with one of his um, subsequent commanders of the unit. So it, it was really powerful to see that and, and I, I, I reminded my boss of that occasionally of, of that type of connectivity. So he would, he would do that with some of the you know ranger lieutenants and, and you know task force pilots that kind of stuff. So it was, it was interesting dynamic. For you, was there one or two sort of singular solitary lessons that you took from everything that happened in Somalia, where you kind of like, okay, well, that's never going to happen again on my watch, or I'll make sure the next time that we go through this that. I do X, Y, and Z kind of deal. Um, I, I don't think there was anything that I wanted to do differently. Um, I, I would have, I would have replaced a couple of people in the, in the chain if I had that kind of authority, <laughs> but I did. Um, um, I, I think, I think our group of lieutenants, um, the three rifle platoon leaders were spectacular. The, we, we got along well, we trained hard, and we understand each other's capabilities and limitations. And, and, and I think that day in that battle, um, the three of us really uh, gelled and came together. And, and, and we built bonds um, that are inseparable. The, the three of us, the four, the four lieutenants, uh, uh, still talk every year on the third. We, we raise a toast to each other. Um, it, it, it's a special bond um, that was built in the most difficult of circumstances. But, but again, I, I don't think I would change anything of what we did. 
you know, the guys were spectacular, the teamwork, the, my squad leaders, platoon sergeants, the, the, the subordinates were as good as you could ever ask for, um, in, in the worst of circumstances. And, and they, they proved the metal. They, they proved why Rangers get selected to do missions like that. Do you mind me asking the other lieutenants names? Yeah. Larry Perino, mm-hmm. um, was the first platoon leader and Tom DiTomaso was the second platoon leader. So and the, we were the three rifle platoon leaders, the, Tom, me, and my other brother, Larry. <laughs> he was, uh, and again, we, it, it was a, it was a big fight. Uh, it was, it was um, a very difficult circumstance, but, but the, the three, the, you know, the, the, I think that's where the glue, you know, the, you know, the company commander had his role, the, the, the LNO, the, the major had his role, but I think the, the lieutenants that were on the ground doing all the fighting and maneuvering that day uh, really, really carried a lot of the weight um, for, for anything that happened. So. All right. Uh, again, fast forwarding. Uh, it's eight years later and 9-11 happens. Where are you? What assignment are you in? And, and what's going on in your world at that point? Um, I had commanded um, later that, earlier that, the ninety. 98, 99, uh, in 1st Brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, I had a old boss um, that was the J3 um, at JSOC at the time, and he called me and he said, hey, I want you to interview to be the aide, the exec to the JSOC commander. He said, I've, I've never wanted to be an aide before, um, but if I had to do it, I would want to do it for this channel. Uh, so I was on post. Um, I had been in the community there was eight people that interviewed. Uh, this was December of 2000. Obviously um, you got the job. <laughs> yeah, there was eight of us. So people from all the different elements provide a rep. So the 160th, the SEALs, the, uh, all the different special ops units provide a rep uh, to come up to interview. Um, and I, the boss was looking for someone that was a little older, a little more mature, somebody that was organized. So I, I think I got the old one. That was about, that was about it. Uh, but it really was a tremendous experience. Uh, I, I interviewed on a Thursday. I got a call on a Friday. Uh, the following Monday, I went to work. And then like seven days later, I left on a trip for Europe for like 27 days. It was just a whirlwind. Uh, that was December, January of 2000, January, 2001. Um, I had been in my position for about 10 months. Um, it was, it was one of the best jobs I think I ever, I, I thought I knew a lot about the community um, until I went to work at JSOC and realized how little I knew about the community and how much that task force has and brings to bear to a fight. Um, on August of 2001, um, we were getting ready to go on a big exercise in Europe and and we had just started interviewing for my replacement. Um, and I was going to just transition to another job before I went to CGSE the next summer. Um, and, uh, and then we were on the exercise in Europe when 9-11 happened. Um, and the boss said, hey, no one's going anywhere. We're keeping the team intact. We're going to be deploying somewhere here. So it was me and the comms guy, the sergeant major, and the, and the CG. The four of us traveled everywhere together. We had been inseparable for 10 months. We had traveled all around the world uh, with exercises and deployments. Uh, so it was, it was a whirlwind, but it was amazing. And, and then that started um, probably the most 
interesting time for the special ops community. You know, 9-11 um, was interesting for a lot of reasons, but, you know, for, for, to be the exec on, on 9-11 and I kept a journal from all the, all the travels from the briefings to Rumsfeld, to the, to the white house, to, you know, we would travel from three units in one day for pre-briefs and exercises before the deployment to Oman. And it really was a tremendous experience. Um, uh, being being a fly on the wall in those meetings and, and being an ear for the boss. It was spectacular. I'm curious to read that journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kept it for the boss to see if he wanted and he's gonna and he said he's not gonna write a book. So um I I've been putting some notes together. We'll have to see what comes out of it. But it really was a an amazing experience. And if, if you have to be a staff guy somewhere as a captain major, um that was the opportunity that I just happened to be sitting in. Uh, which was just the, the most amazing experience and still a great mentor uh, to this day with, uh, with my former boss ambassador daily. Uh, so it was, it was a great experience. Um, well, when that, when that book comes out, I want a copy uh, autographed, of course, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you had mentioned that you ended up back in, in Bagram and, you know, you have two deployments uh, to Afghanistan in the first one, are you with the JSOC commander in that role or have you transitioned out? Yeah, yeah, both both trips. So I stayed for about the first nine months of the, of the effort. Um, okay. They were doing the four or five month rotations. Um, so I did two of the initial rotations uh, with the boss uh, and then transitioned out uh, to go to, to Kansas the following summer. Okay, so you, when you go to Afghanistan, you're not like in actual combat at this point. Um, the boss was, uh, pretty straightforward. You know, he wanted to get inserted with some of the units in the air, you know, the oh. dirt strip landings in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. So okay. he, was, he was, you know, we were on the, the Kitty Hawk when the aircraft were launching for the initial mission. So he, he was pretty straightforward on being out with the troops and being out there. He, he didn't want to be a guy stuck in the junk all the time. So it was a pretty good experience. Was, I, yeah. More fly on the wall stuff. That's a, it's a pretty big fly and a pretty big yeah. wall. Uh, when it's all said and done. So uh, it was, it was tremendous. I mean, I, I don't like asking you to compare uh, battles because it's unfair, right? I mean, everything is different in context and the enemy mm-hmm. is different. The terrain is different. I mean, everything's different, but uh, I, I guess I'm kind of curious as you watch things unfold from a tactical standpoint in Afghanistan, is there anything that stood out to you Maybe that we did different, maybe that we did better, that we did worse kind of deal in the way we fought those years later as opposed to what happened in Somalia. Yeah, I, I think um, the regiment, so looking at it from a regiment perspective, sure. and, and I was there watching them with the, you know, the initial jump and their, their initial missions. Um, they, they, they are good at, at utilizing some of the lessons learned and changing them. So, um you know, they, they, they didn't want to uh, recreate anything that we had done uh, from a negative perspective. Uh, so uh, they maintain their, their good, solid fundamentals. They're able to be flexible in their mission sets, which provided big dividends. You know, they, they did a lot of different missions for a lot of different units, you know, throughout the first, you know, 10 years of the war in Afghanistan. So, they, and, you know, and, and through the majority of the war, you know, they, they, they are very flexible and viable in, in mission sets and, and using different vehicles and different capabilities. So they, they, they have definitely proved themselves. Um, I I think, like you said, the, the mission sets are different, but I think the sure. capabilities and, and using them for uh, the right 
tool for the right mission plays a big part. You know, the, the JSOC commander, the, the use of you know, the, those people who are making those decisions understand what those ranger capabilities are, whether it's a, a grenade mission, whether it's a, a Somali mission or a Afghan mission. Uh, they're, 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 they're very interchangeable because you have that same uh, foundational solid ranger skill set that you can plug and play into so many different opportunities. How do you uh, how do you know it's time for your career to be over? Um, you've done a, a whole lot, and you're spending a lot of time with a, a very you know high level individual. Um, how much longer does your career last after you leave the roles, the uh, aide for the JSOC commander, and, and where do you go next, and when does it all end? Yeah, so I, I made a very difficult decision. I I, I had I had gotten separated um, through a lot of that. Um, I had a, a, a young child. Um, a son that was at Leavenworth the following year and he asked me where I was going to be next summer and I had no idea. Um, and it was a, it was a tough decision. Um, I, I had, I had 21 years in the army. I, I, I had, I had deployed, I traveled all over. I was still young. I wanted to try something different. So I, I actually, I, I made a decision just based on a family instinct. And I, I told some of my other subordinates later on that, um, if, if you, if you're ever making a decision to do something for a family, then it's probably the right decision. Don't second guess that. So I, 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 I was, I was at Leavenworth in CTSC and I asked for, um, my retirement and a waiver of my additional service obligation from Leavenworth and they granted me both. So I graduated with my class and I retired, um, from Leavenworth and, and I didn't serve another assignment. So I, I ended there. Um, I, I, I look back at it and it's, 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 it's hard to second guess, um, or easy to second guess. I guess I don't know what day it is. I, I would have loved to have commanded a battalion. I would have loved to stay in. Um, but I, I looked at it from a, di- a little different perspective, having, uh, 21 years in at that point. And a lot of my peers had nine, 10 years in the army and they were going to command a battalion when they were 30. Um, and, and I was looking at, 30 plus years in the army before I got a battalion command. And there were some variables there that made the decision a little bit easier. Uh, so I, um, I, again, I, I liked it. I, I had a great time. I, 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 I've played around. I've done some different things um, in, in and out of uniform. Um, but I, I don't regret it at all. I, I had a great run. I, I really enjoyed working with soldiers and leading Rangers and, and being a part of what I did. Uh, and if I had to do it all over again, I'd, I'd probably do it the exact same way. So do you know what you're doing next? I mean, do you know what's next for you at that point in time, or are you just sort of figuring it out along the way? Because I know you said the decision was about family, but did you think about your particular career next? Um, yeah, I, I I wasn't really sure, um, but it, I, I knew it wasn't going to be in uniform. So I, in, in, in 2003, 2004, there wasn't a lot of big transition programs, transition processes, uh, right. assistance for DOSOs. <laughs> It was a you get out and do what you can to um, to 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 start your new path. Um, I felt pretty comfortable in the foundation that I had built. I, I had my education. I, I I had served with good people who who, who told me you know, that that whole you know work hard, continue to push for things that you want, and, and you'll get them kind of mentality. So I I used that same uh, same approach. I I worked for the government for a little bit when I first took my uniform off. Uh, I I continued to go overseas in a different capacity. Um, and then started working for 
uh, some defense firms in Washington, D.C., um, enjoyed that work um, and have done uh, a lot of that since uh, big, big defense firms, uh, smaller work for some small business, uh, love nonprofit work, um, made a decision probably five or six years ago that it's time to give back to some of the people and units that I grew up in. So being in a capacity where you can help out soldiers that are leaving units now, uh, it, it really feels good to, to give back in that capacity. Uh, I am not somebody who's ever been inducted into a Hall of Fame, so I'm jealous that you're in any Hall of Fame. But that said, uh, when do you get the phone call that you're being inducted into the Ranger Hall of Fame, which ultimately happens in 2017? Uh, but what's that whole experience? Yeah, it was um, it was obviously a stage that I never saw. I thought I would sit on. Um, I, I've been to a lot of those ceremonies, and I'm always awed by the people that get inducted. and And I've walked that monument several times at Benning, and looked at all the names on the wall. Um, and And to see my name up there now, it's it's kind of surreal. Um, I, I said before, I I always love leading Rangers and and. And, and making that go for full circle um, was really a, a powerful day. Um, I was actually in a, I was playing in a charity golf event um, and Linda Davis is the secretary for the, the Ranger Regiment. She's the only secretary they've ever had since 1984. Um, so she's, she's one of the most powerful women in the world. I think <laughs> she has, she has a lot of secrets on a lot of people. <laughs> Um, but I was on like the seventh or eighth hole and my phone rang and I'm like, I, I saw the number that was from the headquarters at Benning and for years, I never wanted to answer that phone number, <laughs> but I was like, I should, I should answer it today. And, uh, and that's when she told me that I was going to get inducted later that year. And it was really powerful. Again, I was, I was on a, a cloud. I, I don't even remember hitting the golf shot for probably four more holes, um, it really was powerful. Um, I was inducted with a couple of peers. Um, Jeff Struker and I served in the same platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff and I were inducted together in the same class. And, and General Nixon, who was our LNO in, in Mogadishu, who later became the regimental commander. So, um, you know, it, it's super powerful. But being in a capacity now where I can speak on behalf of Rangers and, and, and the heroes that I served with, and teammates that I fought with, um, I, I really love being able to do that. So whenever I get an opportunity to speak of uh, Dominic Pila or Lorenzo Ruiz or Bob Gallagher, uh, you know, true heroes of mine. And, and part of the reason why I'm here today, uh, I do because they, they can't speak on their behalf anymore. So I, I love um, having an opportunity to, to raise their, their cause and their voice whenever I can. Uh, do you remember what you shot that day <laughs> on the golf course? <laughs> Um, we, it was a, it was a scramble. It was a, oh, okay, it was a good. Scramble. we played pretty well, but it good. was a good charity for a good cause. <laughs> I think there was whiskey involved at the end. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there was. Um, you know, I, I was remiss and I didn't ask you this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask it now and I'll give you an opportunity. You know, you mentioned those three names, Dominic Pila, Lorenzo Ruiz and Bob Gallagher. When you hear those names, you know, what sort of emotions go through you? And, uh, when you talk about them, sort of, what, what do you like to say? Well, I think the, I think the big thing is that, you know, they, they were the, they were the ultimate teammates. They, they, they did everything they could for everybody around them and, and, and they never got to be, um, you know, the, the fathers, the grandfathers that they, that they should have. You know, so I, 
I always think of some of the loss that comes with it. You know, they're, they're great heroes and, and they're, they're, they're part of a, a, a big ranger, um, Valhalla gathering that we'll have someday. Uh, and they'll all be there waiting for us, pulling security in the perimeter. Um, but I, I think about some of the, the things that they're missing along the way. And, and, and that's why we, we do some of the things we do now is we, um, we're doing it for them and we, we want to live the life that, that they, they want us to live. Um, they, they, they want us to be the role models. They, they want us to continue to live the Ranger Creed because we can. Uh, so now you're an ambassador for three Rangers whiskey. Uh, I want to be an ambassador for whiskey. I want to be a Hall of Famer. I want to be ambassador. I want to be you. When I yeah. grow up, I want to be you. So how do I how do I get to be you when I grow up? Hey, I told my wife if I could if I could ever get a part time job where I get paid in whiskey, then I know I'm getting somewhere. So there you go. It's all worked out. It's all worked out good. So, but um, tell so me about the company, again, how it started, and how you got involved. Yeah, the foundation. Um, I was asked probably five years ago to to work with the Three Rangers Foundation to help transitioning Rangers from a mentorship program uh, as they leave uniform uh, out into the civilian world. So that that's a, um, a great program um, and has grown tremendously. They have a, a gold star program, a mentorship program, and they're directly linked with 75th regiment. Um, the foundation was also built hand in hand with um, the three Rangers spirits company. So they have a, they have a whiskey that, that provides proceeds to help out the foundation, but the, the whiskey is a, it's a three Rangers rye. It's a, um, a lot of symbolism here on the bottle with some parachute, uh, the North stars and lightning bolts from the crest. And it says, uh, not for the weak or faint hearted right on the bottle. Uh, so it's a, it's a premium bottle of rye whiskey. It's, it's very good, uh, very good recipe. It's getting a lot of momentum where we're trying to sell, um, uh, 2000 cases of, of whiskey this year. So it's, uh, it's, it's getting some good visibility and, and sales. And so we're, we're excited about it and, uh, hopefully we can, uh, keep growing it and again, use that as a, as a platform to help out our, our troops, uh, our, our folks, uh, who are transitioning some of the gold star families who, who everything they get, they deserve, uh, from a, uh, from a, a ranger regimental perspective, uh, to help those families. Um, but, but we like to cause, um, we have some great sponsors that are helping us out. I'm, I'm going to a uh, NASCAR race this weekend in Richmond. Um, we got our, our label, our sticker on um, one of the cars that's been doing some racing. So we're getting some good visibility and some momentum. So we'll see how that plays out. You mentioned the symbolism. I do like the old diamond that the uh, Ranger logo used to be uh, back from the World yeah. War II days. Yeah, that was, a, that was part of the old... Uh, um, World War II logo, and mm-hmm. it even says uh, part of the Ranger Creed on the back. It has a, "I will never leave a fallen comrade" uh, right on the bottle. So it's uh, it's got a lot of good symbolism. Um, getting a lot of movement around the around the U.S. So we'll uh, we'll keep pushing our our marketing and efforts to get it uh, distributed to more locations. But we're hoping uh, hoping to keep it growing. So. Well, again, you can go to threerangers.com uh, for a list of their products and availability and where you can get it and everything, and even in the store. Uh, and luckily for me, they have it right here in Georgia, obviously, because home of the Rangers at Fort Bedding. So I'm yeah. glad I can go pick me up a bottle uh, here shortly. Um, and again, as an ambassador, you're just looking to help spread the word about it and help grow the product and the brand line and everything. Yes. So I, I, I work, uh, I live in the Virginia Beach area and the Navy Exchange um, headquarters is here. So we have a contract with 
the Navy Exchange and AFI. So I, I run the DOD accounts in some East Coast growth. We just got um, our approval for the Virginia ABC. We have a new rep uh, who's right outside of Atlanta. So we'll make sure you guys get linked up. Uh, oh, so, please. Um, <laughs> so we're, uh, yeah, thebrangers.com. We got a location on there. It has uh, some of the sales points on, on where we're distributing if you go on the website. Um, but uh, anything we can do to get the word out and sell some more whiskey for our brothers, it's a good thing. Again, threerangers.com is where you go to get the uh, the Three Rangers whiskey, uh, the rye whiskey there. Uh, looks fantastic. Larry, again, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, learning from you, listening to you, uh, hearing you tell this story uh, once again. And as I said, they're, they're just every time I get somebody else from Black Hawk down, I just learn more and more uh, about different aspects and uh, you know, for somebody like me who, you know, is a, is, you know, commissioned in 99 and, you know, I only know the post 9-11 world. Uh, I always appreciate hearing uh, what the pre 9-11 combat people went through because uh, it's vastly different now. I mean, you know, our, our, our the way we fight and, and the soldier themselves is different now than it never was before. Maybe not in the Ranger world, but just in general, you know, I think I think we've made Rangers pretty consistently over time kind of the same. Uh, we just gave them better toys and, and more stuff to do and, and uh, a bigger mission, sure. which I guess, you know, I, I do want to kind of ask you real quick, just the idea of the, again, this was Rangers to me as somebody, again, who didn't have a lot of pre-military exposure prior to my ROTC career. You know, I never heard anything about them. Um, now, you know, it's, they make movies about them left and right. There are action figures out there. There's whiskeys, there's, you know, every, Rangers are a commonplace name, um, you know, as is special forces and special operations. And, and uh, wh- where do you sit on all of the publicity that special ops guys now get as opposed to what, you know, the life you used to lead before? Well, I, I think it has its pluses, obviously. We, we have a big gap between um, our veterans and the non-veteran civilian community. So 7% of Americans have served in uniform um, and at some point all the way back to the World War II survivors. Um, so there's a, there's a big gap between uh, our veterans and, and the broader civilian community. So anything we can do to close that gap and get more visibility. I, I personally think um, we, we take the quiet professional too far sometimes. Um, I, I love the moniker. Um, and, and what it stands for with the community. But I think sometimes we need to tell the story about some of these heroes that carry a big rucksack for our country. And they, they carry more than their share um, and, we, and we need to tell it. So sometimes it gets pushed to the, the silent professional and it gets put in a safe somewhere because they were on some cool mission. But I think um, you know, the one thing that you know, the Black Hawk Down book and subsequent movie did was it, it gave a broader slice of America, an idea of what special operations and rangers and folks do in uniform for their country. So I, from that aspect, I think that that book and movie, you know, really, really set the tone for getting more visibility for folks who, who really step outside of their, their comfort zone and, 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 and get out there on the end of the spear for specific missions around the world. Uh, I, I will say this much, and again, not having been to Somalia, but you know, people always ask me about military movies and which ones I like the best. When I, I always base it off of the realism of the combat scenes, and I always put Black Hawk Down at the top of that. Uh, I thought they did an amazing job 
uh, at bringing you into, and especially when that volley of gunfire got legit, right? Uh, I thought they did a very good job at bringing that part to life. Um, not so much Saving Private Ryan and other stuff, but, you know, you really get a sense in in what Ridley Scott did with the movie. At least they made that part. Well, Hollywood takes a lot of liberties and bastardizes a lot of things. They made that part, bringing combat, the realism to it. I thought they did a very good job. And and really, Scott did something with that movie, too, that was I thought was unprecedented. Uh, Hollywood, like you said, takes their liberties and sometimes does what they wish. Um, they hired a lot of uh, consultants from the units to be part of the advisory staff when they were filming it in Morocco. Um, but, but before Ridley Scott started filming at all, he sent the entire screenplay to the community, to people who served on the mission to review it before they started filming. Um, and I thought that said a lot about him and his character because he wanted to make sure it was done right. And there was nothing in there that wasn't going to be, you know, a glaring issue with people who were there on the mission. So I, I thought that was really nice on his behalf. Um, uh, just amazing. Larry, again, it's been uh, incredible talking to you. Thank you so much for your, uh, your candor and your honesty and, and reliving some of these tough moments again. But obviously uh, when we get to speak the names, uh, Dominic Pillow, Lorenzo Ruiz and, and Bob Gallagher, it's I'm sure it never is a, a, a bad opportunity for you uh, and for those who always want to remember them. So again, thank you for all that. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, again, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Um, again, we're, we're, we're telling this story for them, like I said, so uh, we appreciate the opportunity and um, look forward to getting you a, a bottle of that whiskey. Let me know when you give it a try. So. A- absolutely. Larry Morris, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.